All right, welcome to Lakeside. I'm Nate. Most of you guys know that. Uh, <laughs> as we go through the epic plan, we're in the Old Testament, right? So we've been m- working our way through the Old Testament, and here we are, six weeks in, and we finally get to wrap up Genesis. We're cruising right along, let me tell you. So we're looking back over this, and this week we kind of move out of like God working with an individual family and into God sort of expanding the plan and sort of letting us all in on a, a little bit of the secret. So, you know, we, we look back over the last couple of weeks and we talked about, you know, Adam and Eve in the garden and God sort of promised at that point that he was going to crush the serpent's head. And we weren't really sure what that meant, right? Like we got some details, but we're not really confident in that. And then, you know, we talked about the flood and after the flood, God tells Noah, I'm, I'm going to never destroy the world again with water right? And so we're like, okay, that seems good, right? And then last week, uh, Simon talked about, you know, there's all this promise that God gave Abraham. We're like, okay, promise that, that the whole world is going to be blessed through Abraham's family. We're like, that That sounds pretty good. That's pretty positive. Uh, and so this week, we're going to see kind of the next step in that. Uh, so turn with me to Genesis 25, if you've got your Bibles, if you've got a pew Bible. The, the verses will all be on the screen, and Aaron's going to read them. So if you don't have one, don't worry about it. But I just want you to kind of be prepared when we get there. The thing is, is as we've gone through the Bible, and it, generally this is a thing that we do, uh, we tend to make the people that we read about our heroes, like they're great, great people, right? And so we, we sort of read this story and we're like, wow, they did such amazing things. Like they're such great people. But the thing is, is all the people, okay, almost all the people in the Bible are flawed, right? Like they've got these issues and we don't necessarily talk about them because it's a little bit weird and a little bit uncomfortable. So when we talked about Noah, you know, we talked about the flood and all this stuff. We didn't talk about the fact that after the flood, Noah struggled with alcohol, right? And then there was some conflict that emerged from that that actually split his family. Like we didn't talk about that. We didn't have time, but like that's not a thing that's easy to necessarily talk through. And with Abraham, right? We talked about these promises and how he had this relationship where he's a friend of God. And then we didn't really talk Talk about the fact that there was two separate occasions where he walks into a kingdom and the king of this kingdom, you know, kind of has eyes on Abraham's wife and Abraham, rather than being like, hey, back off, buddy, right? Like he says, well, this is my sister, not my wife. And like his wife is going to marry some other dude until God intervenes. You're like, that is a messed up family, right? And so we don't talk about those things. We just talk about the amazing things that, that they do in other spots, So there's this kind of this conflict of like these people have issues, but they also do great things for God. Here's the problem. We get to Jacob. Man, he's messed up. (laughs) Like there's not a whole lot that's redeemable about Jacob. He's got serious issues. And we're going to talk about some of those serious issues this morning. And and really the thing that we're going to talk about is that God uses broken people to accomplish his plan. And when you look at Jacob, you're like, yeah, it's a good thing because this guy's pretty broken. Like we're going to talk about his life and you're the whole time you're like, really? This guy's in the Bible? Like, I'm not sure if this is okay, you know? Um, and, and as we look at him, there's the thing is his name, like just start off with his name. His name means usurper. Now that's not a word we use very often, but a usurper is somebody that knocks off the legitimate king and takes over the kingdom. Like that's his name. And that's not just his name. That's also his identity. That's his style. He's deceptive. He's manipulative. He's a jerk. He will rip you off and not even feel guilty about it. That's just kind of how he rolls. 
It's a guy that as we're reading about it, you're like, I wouldn't trust him to babysit my kid. In fact, I don't think I'd trust him to watch my dog. Like he's not a trustworthy person. I, I was kind of thinking last night, we're, we're catching up on, on our Marvel like binging, right? And we're watching Loki. I'm like, I'm preaching about this guy tomorrow. Like it's the same character. Like he rips people off. That's his thing. So, but I think in order to really understand kind of him, I want to backtrack a little bit and look at his family because as he's growing up is when we sort of see this character developing and then we kind of see this, this evolution over time. Uh, so we start off, he's living in his parents' home, right? Uh, and we don't have a lot of details about that, but we do know that before he was born, he's fighting with his brother, like he's still in the womb and his mom's like got some major issues with the pregnancy, right? So she goes to God and she's like, God, what's going on? And God says, well, you've got two different nations that are fighting inside of you, which doesn't sound like, that's not encouraging. You're like, I'm not excited about this. That's a problem, right? But we don't really have a lot of details other than they fought, right? So what we're going to do is we're going to pick up when they're adults and we're going to start in Genesis chapter five, starting in verse 27. Genesis 25, 27 through 34. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man, dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game. But Rebekah loved Jacob. Once, when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, Let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. So we look at Jacob and he rips his brother off. Like, that's the first kind of real story that we have. Of course, the first thing is that we notice as we're reading that story is that both of the parents have their own separate favorite. So, real healthy family situation there, let me tell you. Right? And so... If they had gotten along, right? Like, they've got these two different styles. Jacob's a chef. He wants to be, like, in, in the the kitchen. He wants to be cooking. He wants to hang out in the tents. And Esau is this guy that wants to be out in the field. He wants to be hunting. So if they were like buddies, if they were friends, then, you know, maybe they would have like a podcast about like from field to plate or something. And everybody would listen to it like super, but no, they know they hate each other. They don't talk to each other. Really. They've got this relationship that's kind of contentious. And so Jacob comes and he's, he's trying to rip off his brother. He's trying to take advantage of the fact that his brother's hungry right? Like you don't make good decisions when you're hungry. We all know this. And so he wants to take advantage of the fact that his brother's hungry. And he's like, I'm going to get this birthright from him. And Esau's not blameless here, right? Like he needs to be making better decisions. This is, the birthright is significant. He's the eldest son. And that means that as he gets older, he's going to take a place of leadership in the family. Now for us, that doesn't mean much. Like what is, what is leadership in the family? But for, for this time period, like Isaac is a patriarch, like he runs this family and it's a big family and they've got flocks and herds and servants and all these different tents. And like, it's, it's the leadership of a small clan. Like it's, it's a big deal. And there's also spiritual blessings that come along with that where the patriarch is kind of like the priest because this is before the priesthood was established. So there's spiritual responsibilities and leadership responsibilities. And then you have to inherit, like you get a larger portion of the inheritance. And so Esau is looking at that stuff and it's kind of abstract and in the future because Isaac's still around, right? Like he doesn't, 
It's not real yet. And so he's like, whatever, I'm going to trade this abstract spiritual blessing thing for, you know, a bowl of chili. That's really what it comes down to. Like it's lentil stew. It's just beans in a pot, right? And so he trades this this abstract spiritual and and real physical thing that's not going to come around yet for just, just dinner. And so he's not really that in tune with spiritual things. He's not that in tune with what sort of you ought to be doing. Like if you're leading the family, you ought to take that responsibility seriously, but he doesn't. He's kind of casual about it. Uh, Phil Kern says this, the birthright's value is tied to faith as it promises future blessings. So the assumption is, is that if he's got a good relationship with God, he's going to recognize there's really some value here. This is an important thing. I need to hold this kind of tightly. But instead, he doesn't have, he doesn't value spiritual things. And so he's like, whatever. I mean, I can probably make up, you know, the loss in inheritance some other way and, and we'll figure it out. And so Esau is not sort of in tune with spiritual things, even though he's got all these gifts that are good, right? Like he's a hunter, he's a a man's man, like he's a real dude, he's capable, right? But he's that guy, but he doesn't have any value for spiritual things. And Jacob, on the other hand, even though his heart's not sort of in the right direction, like he's deceptive, he's not really the guy that everybody thinks that he should be, but he does have some value for spiritual things. So that's, that's kind of the first thing. The second, the second snapshot that we have is, is in chapter 27. And again, it's about Jacob kind of being sneaky. So uh, Genesis chapter 27, the first five verses. When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son. And he answered, Here I am. He said, Behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then, take your weapons, your quiver, and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me, and prepare for me delicious food, such as I love, and bring it to me that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. Now Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So if you keep reading, then what you discover is that Rebekah decides that her son needs the blessing, the, the son that is her favorite needs the blessing versus her husband's favorite. And so she goes out of her way. She grabs some clothes that are Esau's and she cooks the food that sort of uh, Isaac expected. And so they, they sort of set this thing up where they're going to deceive Isaac because he can't see very well. They're going to deceive him to steal this blessing. Like that's the goal. And so again, healthy family when you've got mom and her favorite scheming to rip off dad and his favorite. Like that's the dynamic that we've got going on here. Um, And again, so the birthright is kind of this role of leadership, but the blessing is sort of like uh, this combination of like a promise and um, like like a prophecy that's there to sort of help the person that's got the birthright to, to make the, the, the right decisions, to grow in the right way, to move in the right direction. So it's sort of a combo deal, right? The birthright and the blessing are supposed to go together. So, you know, he's already got half of the deal and now he sort of schemes to get the other half. Uh, and skip down to verse 18 and we see what actually kind of transpires. So he went to his father and said, my father. And he said, here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I've done as you told me. Now sit up and eat of my game, that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, How is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? He answered, Because the Lord your God granted me success. Then Isaac said to Jacob, 
Please come near that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. So Jacob went near to Isaac, his father, who felt him and said, The voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him. So mom kind of sets this up, but when Jacob gets inside the tent, he just straight up lies to his dad. Like this isn't like, oh, well, his mom set it up and she was the real trickster. Like, no, he walks into this tent and his dad's like, okay, who are you? And he's like, I'm Esau. And he's not. And then he goes in there and he's like, God blessed me so that I would be able to do this. Like he's not just lying to his dad's face. He's also lying about what God's done. Like he's, he's deceptive. He's looking to rip people off. Um, and then this blessing comes, you know, and, and so Isaac, thinking that this is Esau, blesses Esau, or who he thinks is Esau, in a way that would be appropriate, right? So the blessing is like, the smell of my son, the smell of a field from the Lord, may God give you the dew of heaven, the fatness of the earth. He gives him this blessing that is sort of geared to who Esau was. But as we're reading this, it's kind of weird because we're like, so wouldn't God know? Like, if this is a blessing, if this is like a prophecy, wouldn't God figure this out? And why are they so paranoid? Like, if he blesses the wrong guy, is that a problem? And I don't, I don't know, like, I can't put myself into their shoes 100%, but they're all very serious. Like, this is just whoever's standing there when they get the blessing seems to be the only person that's going to be able to do it. So, you know, obviously Esau comes back, he discovers what went on, he gets furious, um, and, and he's angry at his dad, he's angry at his brother, he asks for a blessing, and his dad basically says, yeah, you're going to serve your brother. Now, the weird thing is, is as we get through the story, that this blessing is almost irrelevant. Like, it doesn't actually come out for Jacob the way that we would expect it to, and we'll get to kind of how God blesses Jacob in different ways, but this seems like it's not really about this blessing, it's really about Jacob's attitude and how Jacob's trying to achieve what he thinks that he deserves and what he thinks God wants, right? Like he's being manipulative and he's trying to sort of grab uh, whatever it is. And he learned it from his mom. Like this is a family trait and we'll get to uncle in a minute. He's got an uncle that's the exact same way. But it's one of those things where it's like he grew up in this house with a manipul manipulative mother and he became a manipulative, deceitful person. That's who he is. And so my first application question is this. What's the sin that I struggle with because of the example of my family? Because I think like we, we're all broken people. We all grow up in broken families. And there's going to be something that happens along the way where we've got sins that were sort of like winked at or accepted or maybe even valued in the families that we grew up in. And it's a problem in our relationship with God. And so I, I just want, you know, like as we kind of go through this and we think about how this applies to our own lives, we see Jacob who's got this sin of deception that he struggles with his entire life. Like it's an issue. The favoritism thing hounds him till he dies. And, and he learned that as a kid in Abraham and, and uh, or in Isaac and Rebecca's house. Like that's where he learned that. And so I think in our own lives, we have to look and say, what, what have I picked up? That's not something that glorifies God. That's not something that honors him, but it's a part of my life because of the way that I grew up or the place that I grew up or the family I grew up in. Because the consequences of sin are damaging. Like we talk about broken people. The reason we're broken is because of the sin in our lives. And so we, we have to sort of examine that and say, where, where have I been influenced in a, in a negative way by the, the way that I've been raised? 
Uh, So in spite of that brokenness, we're going to see God use him, right? We're going to see him be able to be used by God. And God is faithful to him through those circumstances. We're going to pick up in in chapter 28, starting in verse 10, as he runs away for his life from his brother who's trying to kill him. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven, and behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. So we read that. That's a little bit shocking. Like this is the guy, this is the guy that we just read about, right? Like he ripped off his brother and then he ripped off his dad. And then his brother's so mad about the fact that they were both ripped off that he threatens to kill him. So he goes on the lamb, like he's running for his life and God appears to him and says, I'm going to bless you. That doesn't seem right. <laughs> like it seems a little bit messed up. Like God is faithful. God shows him this vision in spite of the fact that he's a liar that's on the run for very legitimate reasons, Right? And then we see this vision, like there's this story of the stairway to heaven. And we see that and we're like, I don't know what that means. It's just kind of a Sunday school story where there's this guy that has this dream and it's the stair to heaven. And when we see that, we we don't kind of know what to do with it. Uh, And so I want to deal with that a little bit because I think it it helps us understand the way that God is working with Jacob. Philip Kern again says this, Jacob's ladder is neither a ladder nor Jacob's. It shows us God reaching into the world. So this isn't about Jacob having this vision of heaven. This is about God showing him, I'm going to reach into the world and I'm going to be the one that acts. I'm going to be the one that moves. I'm going to be the one that fulfills my promises in spite of the fact that you're a bit of a scumbag. Like that's, that's really what it's about is that God recognizes Jacob is a person that's broken and in need and God wants a relationship with him and God wants to be faithful to him in spite of the things that he's done that are so messed up. And when we talk about that, like the, the, the thing that we've named this series is the epic plan, right? And when we think about what it is that the epic plan is, it, it hinges on the fact that God's going to reach into the world in order to build a relationship with people. That's what's God, what God's plan is the whole time. You know, we look at our own lives and we say, okay, I may be not as messed up as Jacob, but I'm still a sinner. I'm still broken, right? And I can't scheme my way into a relationship with God the same way that Jacob was unable to lie and deceive his way into a relationship with God. We have the same inability to, to access God because all the tools we have are, are sinful. They're broken. They're, they're not effective in, in reaching out to God. And so God says, I love you. I care about you. I want a relationship with you. And I'm going to show you that I'm going to reach into the world. 
I'm going to make the changes that are necessary, right? And so when we look at this whole plan, we see Jesus coming into the world to taking on the sin of the world himself. He's the one that takes our brokenness and then he offers us a relationship with him. He says, I love you. I care about you. You're a sinner, but I'm going to take that penalty on myself so that I can have a relationship with you. And so when we come to Jesus in faith and we say, I'm broken, I'm a sinner, you've got to fix this, then suddenly we're able to have this relationship with the God of the universe because he's reached in, he's touched us, he's changed our lives. And that's really what the epic plan is, that God loves us enough to step into the world and, and touch us and change us. First Timothy uh, chapter 1, verse 15 through 17 says this, This saying is trust, trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of who I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Jesus came into this world in order to build that relationship that we can have eternal life. And eternal life isn't this abstract that when I die, I'll still be able to, to you know, survive at some level. It's the fact that I've got a relationship with God who's the source of life in this world. And so my life now is the beginning of an eternity where I have that relationship with him. God is faithful. He's gonna reach out in love regardless of who I am, regardless of what I've done, regardless of the family I've come from. And so when we, we see that and Jacob gets this, gets this little snapshot of God's larger plan in the world. And you know what? I love Jacob, but he misses it. <laughs> he completely strikes out. Reading in verse 20. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me, and will keep me in this way that I go, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. So God shows his plan to Jacob. God says, okay, you can't do this. I've got to be the one that steps in. And Jacob's response is, cool, let's make a deal. Like that's his deceptive heart saying, we're going to negotiate this. We're going to haggle this. All right, God, if you do all these things for me, then this is how I'll respond to you. Like that's his response. And I think so many times, like we haggle with God. We're like, okay, Lord, if you do this for me, then I'll do this for you. And it's a good trade because I don't know why. I'm just a created being. I don't really have a good reason. Um, (laughs) So he doesn't want to just accept what God is graciously providing. He wants to figure out how he can be in control, how he can manipulate, how he can be in charge, right? Like I said, God uses broken people to accomplish his plan. He steps in and points to Jacob and says, I love you. I'm going to build a relationship with you. I'm going to bless you. And Jacob's like, okay, let's cut a deal. Like that's not how that's supposed to go. He misses it entirely. So he leaves this place where this, this you know, vision occurred and he gets to Haran, which is where his uncle is. Um, so if you want to read three chapters of, of family dysfunction, Genesis 29 through 31 is mind-blowing stuff, let me tell you. Uh, not in a good way. This guy makes uh, Maury Povich look like Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Like, it is so messed up if you read it. Like, you, you go through this and you're like, okay. So he starts off and he's like, okay, I'm going to work for my uncle, right? That's a family relationship. He's working for his uncle. And then he's like, all right, well, his uncle says, well, I, I got to pay you. What can I pay you? And he's like, well, I'll, I'll, 
I want to earn my cousin's hand in marriage, which that's not the messed up part. I know that sounds messed up, but in that day and age, it was a lot less, you know, frowned upon than it is now. That was sort of socially normal. So his uncle says, all right, work for me seven years and I will give you uh, my daughter as a wife. He's like, cool, let's do that. Works for seven years. And his uncle on the wedding night swaps the two sisters, right? There's the sister that he was, he wanted to marry. And then there's this other sister that, you know, it doesn't say anything nice about her. Uh, so he, he ends up and he wakes up the morning after the wedding and he's like, this is not the girl that I tried to marry. So he goes to his uncle. He's like, you ripped me off. That's super not cool, right? Like I was trying to marry this one girl and you put in this other girl. And his uncle's like, oh yeah, ha, that's like this little thing that we've got. So work for me another seven years. I'll give you the one you want. You can have the, mar- the wedding next week though. So he's married to the one girl for a week and then he marries another girl. Then he works for seven years to sort of pay that off. And you're like, okay, so the uncle is manipulative and doesn't care about his daughters one iota. Like that's also really messed up, right? Um, And then after he's worked for him 14 years and now he's got two wives that kind of became four wives along the way. We're not gonna go into that part either. But like, (laughs) listen, it's the Old Testament. God hasn't said anything yet about polygamy. So we're just gonna let it ride even though it's not healthy. And trust me, if you think polygamy is okay, you read those three chapters, it's not good. It's bad news. Wow. So the thing is, is so now he's got these four wives and he's got 11, 11 kids by these four wives and he starts to negotiate with his uncle again. He's like, okay, well, you got to pay me because I'm still working for you, right? And I've paid off the, the wives. So they start to do this thing with these goats and basically they're both trying to rip each other off the whole time where it's like, well, you get these goats and I get these goats and then we're going to separate them. And they're both trying to get their goats to be the strong goats. It's like, they're just trying to rip each other off. And in the end, God blesses Jacob and says, listen, it's not the stuff that you did to try and rip off your uncle. It's the fact that I'm blessing you. That's the only reason that you've got this stuff. But the, the, the relationship just continues to break down. Like they're just ripping each other off. And so at the end of it, Jacob's like, I've been here for 20 years. I've got, you know, all these wives. I've got all these sheep now. I'm going back home. I'm going back to, to mom and dad. And I'm not dealing with the uncle anymore. At the end of that sort of section, what, what comes out of this is, is this. Laban is a manipulative jerk. Like it's a family trait on that side, right? They're all manipulative. Laban's probably the worst one. Um, Jacob has been taken advantage of, but he hasn't made great decisions either. It's not like he's sort of walked through this, you know, being this, this great guy the whole time. Like he's been a jerk too. There's plenty of examples of him like trying to rip off his uncle. He's just not quite as good at it. He's got God on his side is essentially what it comes down to. So after 20 years, four wives, a dozen kids, he decides, okay, now we're going home. So he starts heading home, and and as he gets close, he hears that Esau is waiting for him with an army of 400 men, right? So the brother that was trying to kill him 20 years ago is now waiting for him with an army. He's like, I got some wives, I got some kids, I got some sheep. None of those are good for fighting. I'm I'm not excited about this, right? And so he starts off by sending gifts. He's sending all these flocks and herds, right? That's the, the wealth of the time, right? Like that was a way that you had like real, real money is if you could afford like flocks and herds. So he's sending these gifts of these herds ahead of to, to, to his brother and be like, this is a gift for you because like we're good, we're brothers, we love each other, right? And he's trying to, to build that relationship back up. So as he's sending these, like it's just everybody that's going on ahead. And then we pick up in in Genesis chapter 32, uh, we'll read 22 through 32. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 children and crossed the ford of Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. 
And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of that place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. This is, this is really one of the key moments in Jacob's life. And as we're sort of reading it, we don't recognize the significance of it until we get to the point where he says, I've wrestled with God, right? Like then all of a sudden you're like, whoa, wait, I thought that was a man. Of course, we're Christians, right? So a God that looks like a man and he's standing there and you can touch him. That's not that weird for us. Like we, we kind of get that, that vibe. Um, but he wrestles with this guy all night long and then he's demanding this blessing. He says, you have to bless me. And, and really like... That's his life. <laughs> That's his whole life up to this point is that he's struggled, he's argued, he's fought, he's manipulated. And the point of that is to get what he wants to get what he thinks he needs. And that's who he is. That's his identity. He's the usurper. He's going to rip you off. And he's going to do that because he wants what he wants. And he's going to do what it takes to get it. And now he's actually wrestling with God. And it's the same thing. It's the same thing where he's wrestling and he demands like, you've got to bless me before I'm going to let you go. I'm going to fight you too. Uh, Philip Kern says this. The reply to Jacob's question, why do you ask my name, forces recognition. Jacob, don't you know who blesses you? Don't you know who's watched over you all these years? It now settles upon Jacob that throughout his life, he's been wrestling with the God who longs to bless him. He hasn't needed to grasp and fight, only surrender. His adversaries, Esau, Isaac, Laban, were family, pushed to the brink by his grasping and wrestling. Now he clings to God, knowing there's no other hope. The blessing rod from Esau meant nothing, the blessing obtained from God means everything. Like he spent his whole life fighting and he comes to the point and he's like, you've got to bless me. You've got to give me a blessing. And God's like, you know what? Your name was Jacob, the deceiver, the usurper. Like that's not who you are anymore. Your new name is Israel. And we don't, like, we don't think about that as significant, but Israel means God, God fights for me. God's saying, listen, I love you. I've wanted to bless you this whole time. You've been wrestling for blessings that you didn't have to fight for. I was going to give you the good things regardless because I love you and I promised a relationship with you. This is what I want to do for you. Stop fighting. Stop fighting me. Like that's what God comes and says. And, and it's funny because like he wins, quote unquote, the wrestling match. How do you win a wrestling match with God? Like legitimately, how do you do that? God has to have already decided, I love you, I'm going to bless you, I'm going to let you win. That's how you win in a wrestling match with God, is if God already decided that you're going to win. And so he comes to God, he fights with him, he wrestles with him, and God's like, no, 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 you can't win this fight unless I let you win this fight. But since I've wanted you to win this whole time, your whole life, of course I'm going to bless you. That's God's response. God changes his name and gives him a new identity that's not, I've got to fight for everything that I want. It's God's fighting on my behalf. That's who he is now. My application question here is this. 
Do I trust God to bless me? Do I trust that God has what's best for me in mind? Or do I think that I've got to fight and wrestle and manipulate and deceive to get what I think I need? Do I try and negotiate with God? Do I, do I try and, you know, figure out a way that I can be in control? Or do I just say, you know what, God, you're good. And whatever it is that you want, whatever you need from me, I'm going to do that because you're going to be the one that's fight, going to fight for me. Am I willing to let God fight my battles? And, and really what happens is when Jacob has this interaction with God, it suddenly changes him. He's a different person. And we're going to see that as he actually meets up with his brother Esau. Uh, chapter 33, starting in verse 1. And Jacob lifted, his, lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, Esau was coming, and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants. And he put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, Who are these with you? And Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. And then skipping down to verse 8, Esau said, What do you mean by all this company that I met? Jacob answered, To find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, No, please, if I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I've seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. So when Jacob finally meets up with his brother again, right? He ripped him off. He ran away because he didn't want to die. He, he had this really negative relationship with him because of what he was trying to get. And when he gets back to, to this, this relationship, he starts off with just sending all this, these gifts, all this money, right? And then he gets there and he falls down and he bows in front of him, so showing deference, right? Like, you're the older brother. I'm, I've wronged you and this kind of stuff. And what we realize is that all those blessings that he wrestled for early on, he's given them back. Like, he, he fought, like, he ripped his brother off, bowl of stew for the inheritance, right? So I get a bigger percentage of what dad's got. And now he's just giving them sheep and goats. He's like, take them. And he's like, I don't really need him. He's like, no, no, take him. I, I'm, I just want to give him the blessing. He's giving back the thing that he ripped off. And then the blessing, like he, the, one of the blessings was that he would bow down, like your brothers will bow down to you. That's what Isaac had said to him. And he comes and he bows down to his brother. He, he, it's not the blessing, right? Like he's giving that up. He's saying the birthright, the blessing, I don't want it anymore. I want what God's given me. Again, the, the end of that quote that, that Philip Kern had, the blessing robbed from Esau meant nothing. The blessing obtained from God meant everything. He recognizes, I fought for this, I've scraped for this, I've manipulated for this, and it's not worth it. I need to, I need to allow God to bless me in the way that God's going to bless me, and this other stuff, I need to let it go. I, I think in our lives, that's a really important lesson for us to recognize, that as much as we can fight, as much as we can argue, as much as we can manipulate, the things that we get out of that aren't actually the things that God wants for us. Like when we try and be in control, that's not what God has asked us for. It's, it's really about trusting him and having a relationship with him and sort of letting go of all those other things. My, my, my four, third application question is this. 
Who are people you have hurt or offended that you need to make restitution for? Like, who are the people that I have tried to control or tried to scrape from that I didn't need to because really God didn't ask for that? Who are the people that I need to say, you know what, you can have your sheep back, you can have your blessing back, I don't need it. God's already given me what I need. Again, God's working in Jacob's life. God's using him even though he's broken. And, and a lot of the stories about Jacob end right here. Like this is like the end of the Jacob arc that's like good and, and healthy. And so we're like, okay, good job, Jacob. Over these, you know, 20, 30 years, whatever, like you learned your lesson and we're so glad. But that's not really how it ends, right? Like if you keep going through Genesis, you discover he's not actually, like he's changed, but it hasn't sort of rooted itself in his life. But you know what? God's still using him. God is using him to build a people. And so we, we, what we see is that he comes through life. He's clutching, he's fighting, he's trying to get, and he comes to this moment, this, this moment of clarity. He wrestles with God. He realizes, I need to let this go. And so he's a changed person. But because he spent his whole life being manipulative and deceptive, he hasn't, it hasn't changed everything, right? Like there's still pieces of that that, that go on. And he still struggles with favoritism. Like we've all heard the story of Joseph and we don't connect that with the story of Jacob. We're just like, it's disconnected. And we're like, Joseph, who got this amazing multicolor coat from his dad? Cause he was the favorite. Like, oh, so dad was a little messed up. Where did dad learn that? From his mom, right? And so Jacob is this dad who gives his son, you know, this coat. And he's like, you're my favorite. And I'm going to let everybody know that you're my favorite. There's no hiding it now. And so Jacob's family, his sons, they're so dysfunctional, right? Like they try and kill Joseph. They try and kill him and then they sell him into slavery. And, and so Jacob spends a big chunk of the end of his life thinking that his, son is, his favorite son is dead, right? And yet, and yet God works through Joseph and God brings salvation to the sort of whole family in a time of, of worldwide famine through this son that was estranged. And so God continues to work even in spite of the fact that Jacob completely messed up his family. Like he had this broken family because of the broken family that he grew up with that he wasn't able to sort of manage through. And, and what happens is that God blesses that family. And then now we look at Israel, the name that he was given, and we're like, oh, Israel, that was the nation of Israel, right? And there's 12 tribes because he had 12 sons in the end, right? And each of those sons was a tribe and they grew and they prospered and God used them. And eventually Jesus comes from that line. So God continued to work his plan. God continued to build his people, but he did that in spite of the fact that, you know, Jacob was kind of a train wreck. Hebrews uh, chapter 11 says this to sort of like close out the Jacob arc. It says, by faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. So at the end of his life, he, was, he recognized like there were some issues, there were some problems, but he's blessing his sons, he's blessing his grandsons, and he's telling them, this is what God's gonna do for you. And if you read the blessings at the end of Genesis that he, he gives to his sons, they're a lot more spiritually in tune than the blessing that he received was. Like he, there, is, there is growth there. Um, but really what it is, is that God's working in Jacob's life to build this family into a nation. And so we see that transition going from, from one family where it sort of goes along the way to Jacob, where it sort of explodes into this large people group. And it's not that Jacob's this hero. Again, God uses broken people 
to accomplish his plan. He's messed up. He's got favorites. He's deceptive. He's not a trustworthy person for the vast majority of the story. And yet he's a person that God has used in in a mighty way. And really, when we think of that, what we realize is that's our story too. That we're broken people, that we've got some of those same tendencies that Jacob has, but that God can use us. And so we have to look at our lives and we have to be honest. If I'm broken, what are some of the places that I'm broken? What's a sin that I struggle with from my family, from other situations that I've sort of inherited along the way where I'm not the person I ought to be because of circumstances, but that God, God is willing to use me in spite of, but that doesn't mean that I'm not accountable for those and I don't have to repent of those. I don't have to deal with those in my own life. Right? And then I, I look at, you know, looking at Jacob's life again, do I trust God enough to let him bless me? Am I so broken that I don't trust God? Or do I say, you know what, God, I'm broken and you're perfect and you're the one that can actually fix me. You're the one that can actually bless me. You're the one that has my best interest in mind. And the last question, if I'm truly broken, hurt people hurt people, right? And so I've probably hurt other people. I've damaged people along the way. What's God calling me to do for a restitution or for an apology or, or to forgive someone that, that I have been in the wrong in, in breaking some of those relationships. Like if God uses broken people, I can stand before him and be like, God, I am broken and I want to repent of that, but I know that that still means that you can use me. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your unconditional love toward us. That even though we're broken, even though we're sinners, even though we're a mess, you still love us. You still want a relationship with us. And you still use us to accomplish your glorious plan. We thank you for that. We thank you for the grace that you've given us. We thank you for the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross that gives us the opportunity to have that relationship with you. I pray that now as, as we sit here and as we worship for this last song and as we, as we go out and, and live our lives, that you would bring to mind the spots that we need to address, the, the broken families, the, the broken relationships that we've been a part of and just repent of those things and, and do the right thing and, and make restitution there. But I also pray that as, as we recognize our brokenness, that we would be willing to be blessed by you, that we wouldn't fight for it or scrape for it, but just say, Lord, you're a good, good God. And I want you to give me what you want to give me. We pray all this in your name. Amen. Let's stand together.